Peter Proggathofer spricht mit. Hallo, in dieser Folge spreche ich mit Geraldine Fitzpatrick. Sie ist eine Kollegin und Institutsvorständin am Institut für Gestaltungs- und Wirkungsforschung, dem ich übrigens am 17. Februar 25 Jahre lang anzugehören die Ehre habe. Wir sprechen auf Englisch, das ist ein First für diesen Podcast. Unserer Herkunft folgend reden wir nicht nur über Design, Agile und Proximal Development, sondern auch über die Wissenschaftlichkeit unserer Arbeit, über die Verallgemeinerbarkeit von Erkenntnissen aus dem Design und über die mühsamen Gepflogenheiten des wissenschaftlichen Publikationszirkuses. Gute Unterhaltung. Ja, herzlich willkommen bei Peter Purgatofer spricht mit. Mein heutiger Gast ist Geraldine Fitzpatrick. Geraldine Fitzpatrick spricht lieber Englisch als Deutsch. Und daher, so I'm now gonna switch to English. Hello, Thank Geraldine. You. Hello, Peter. So, um, you're a um, professor for Gestaltungs- und Wirkungsforschung, Design and Assessment of Technology mm -hmm. at the Vienna University of Technology. Mm -hmm. More specifically, you're my boss. <laughs> <laughs> If only. Yeah, yes. No. Yes. You're here now for five years, if I remember correctly. It, it is five years. It's just over five years. Okay. Five uh, and a quarter, actually. Yes, it's, it, it, time flies. <laughs> time flies. Um, the, the the situation is maybe a bit awkward as we work together so much. So uh, finding things to talk about in this uh, podcasty way is a bit um, strange. Mm, and I'm not sure what to expect either, but let's just see how we go. I tried to uh, prepare a couple of things we can talk about. Well, one thing I thought we can talk about is about the suddenly loud people are talking <laughs> near us. That's, that's typical. Whenever I start recording, noise goes up considerably. That It's always like that, but they will stop soon. Yeah. So I thought what, one thing we could talk about is a little bit how to um, uh, frame design within informatics and within the curriculum mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. media informatics, mm -hmm. because that's something we're dealing with on a daily basis. Yep. And uh, we've had now a couple of years experience with the current curriculum, which is from 2011 or 12. Yeah. And I think it would be interesting to reflect about that a little bit. Um, so. After a couple of years, would you say we're successful in teaching students a different approach to what they learned until then? I think the students have had a lot of really great <coughs> experiences and opportunities to actually design software and in particular tangible products using sensor-based technologies that require software programming skills in order to um, program the, the functionality of the sensors. Um, And I think one of the important things is that the new curriculum has done has been to integrate design into a whole life cycle. Mm -hmm. So in, it, when the courses are running properly, and we've been in this transition phase, so there's been, it's not been as smooth as what it might be in the next couple of years as an experience for the students. But I imagine that the, the design of the course that gives them building blocks for components 
that they then put together into some bigger projects or that, where they see things through from sort of initial idea to talking with people to exploring prototypes to getting them out and seeing them how they work in practice and and not just work in practice as finished as finished um, uh, products but work in practice as being ongoingly put to use mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. practice and ongoingly designed in, in use, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. um, provides a really important insights and experiences for the students. Some of the courses that I teach in particular in relation to this are uh, the user research methods, which on the one hand might seem like they don't fit with the designerly approach. Um, and there are debates about how much the user research should inform requirements in the strict software engineering sense of requirements versus being inspiration for design. And I think that's, um, as my students in the class learn, it depends is the answer to everything because there, it, uh, it, it depends upon what, you know, if you're really problem solving a problem that already exists, yes, it might be more about requirements, but if you're uh, creating whole new opportunities for interaction, it might be really understanding the qualities that are important or characteristics of the context and, and looking for inspiration for design. But even though that sort of user research is a very important part of informing design or underpinning mm -hmm. design um, and complementing the sort of uh, expertise and strengths of the expert designer, and that's just got noisier again. <laughs> uh, <it's laughs> I like very much, now we, we had as guests um, Liam Pennon and Paul Gold mm. before the weekend. Yeah. I like very much how Liam Pennon said um, that it's not about phases, it's about perspectives yeah. you take as a designer. Yeah. Um, uh, so you have this perspective where you try to understand something, and then one where you try to design, and then one where you try to appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not being phases that you follow yeah. linearly, no. one after the other, yeah. but um, you switch between these perspectives. Yeah. And I like that very much because yeah. it um, takes away that um, it, it, it's it's the process, stupid. You have yeah. to do it that way, but rather introduces it at something where you can switch around. Yes. And that it's a learning by doing and reflecting and doing and trying out and going around and going backwards and reforming and reshaping. It shifts it from a very engineering notion, which is fine, I think, when you're developing something that might be, require much more sort of solid engineering skills. No, this isn't being, I'm not, I'm not expressing it well because I can imagine people saying, but you know, software is engineering. And at its core, um, creating software and Achieving the functionality you want is an engineering-based problem. But I think the design of what it is that you want that engineering to achieve fits much more in that wicked problem space that fits mm -hmm. this sort of multiple perspectives and overlapping you know, sort of concerns and perspectives taking being considered mm -hmm. at the same time. The, uh, there's this one uh, paper by Jonas Löfgren who distinguishes between internal and external design. And I always liked that very much, as he says that internal design can be seen very much as an engineering task. Mm -hmm. But external mm -hmm. design, when you look at mm -hmm. it as an engineering task, you, mm -hmm. you will fail, probably. Yeah. Or yeah. You, I rather like to say you will create mediocre results, yeah. which is what we, we get to see everywhere all the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. And um, so, so maybe that's one of the key things to understand that um, uh, it's an engineering thing. Yes, when at you its look core. At the, yes, at, at, at that, its core. And at that internal, thing, I've yes. not heard about it before, but that's a good way of putting it. Yes, inside the box is an engineering 
public. But outside, it's not. And no, if you yeah. look at it as an engineering, yeah. you will create more problems, yeah. like the typical the the changing requirements or yeah. the, the requirements that change yeah. all the time. Which is which is our language reflects. I think Liam has Liam said this as well last week, didn't he? The importance of our language and concepts, yes. and our language of our, the requirements change as if oh damn, you know those stupid people have changed their mind again or something, and that these requirements are fixed. Whereas it's a different sort of language would draw more attention to the emergence of an ongoing sort of understand of a growing understanding of the context and the possibilities and the role that technology can play, but also the emergence of an understanding on people's side about what could be possible and what they might like and, mm -hmm. and what can be done. And allowing space for that as a legitimate part of the yeah, design yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. Now, there are issues of how that scales, of course. You can't go and sell a, a multi million euro project to a government department saying you will revamp their software systems with this sort of approach. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges yeah, for us yeah, is how do we. Like, how, how do we create oversight for those who are responsible yep. that the outcome is appropriate? Yep. And how do we create room in a process that allows for this sort of more, you know, some of the aspects of agile development that are about sort of small incremental steps, small pieces, build it, get it out there, build the next bit. Yep. How do we create more of an <coughs> agile development process um, that allows for you know, this sort of growth and adaptation mm -hmm. of the ongoing development to suit the, con you know, to suit the situation? With large-scale projects where they do need a certain amount, you know, whether if they're contract-based and deliverable-based, and you do need a certain amount of certainty, but if you're committing you know, X million euros of taxpayers' money, that the system they're going to get at the end works. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. I think sometimes I believe that um, part of the problem is that we're such a young discipline. Like with architect. computer science yes. in general, um, or, or, or yeah. more the design the, well, input both, into computer but let's science. Say yeah. the, the informatics yeah. um, or IT business. When you look at architects, they actually get that kind of um, uh, uh, trust advance, advanced mm -hmm. advanced mm -hmm. trust before mm -hmm. a project, uh, and you, you just go to a, a, an architect and say. Let's build something truly great, and then outcomes. I don't know, Kunsthallengratz or yeah. um, maybe some of the buildings in um, in Paris or whatever. So, but, but maybe it's not. It's similar, but not quite. Because at some point, the architect needs to have the sort of finished plans that are all drawn up and measured. That then go to the civil engineers and go to the builders and gets constructed. Whereas I. What I think our designly sensitive or intuitions would suggest, and experiences in, in smaller scale projects of what how what works best for getting stuff at the end that matters and that works for people, is something more in line of let's build the kitchen first and see if we can get that you know a couple of the core rooms working well and then add other rooms on you know so i think that would be more the model yeah, that software yeah, is yeah. enables because yeah. it's more of a it is a soft intangible product it's less tangible what i was getting at that as we're such a young discipline there's this trust has not been built so if 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 
if in, I don't know, 50 years, I mean, just thinking mm. linearly, nothing yeah. changes. Yeah. But we do 50 years of, yeah. of work now. Yeah. Maybe in 50 years, yeah. the, the million dollar project, a million euro project could yeah. go to a software design company who works just like that. Yeah. And now we have gained the confidence yeah. that it will lead to an end. But at the moment, yeah. they rather rely on the well-defined processes yeah. and a waterfall and stuff yeah. like that. Because but they which doesn't it's so work. much easier. Which but it's yeah. easy to believe in that. That's it's easy to believe in. It's easy to sell up front. It's easy to get a contract written. And how many, I'm just picking up on the government projects as a thing, how many huge government projects that have cost taxpayers in countries all around the world gazillions of dollars, pounds, euros have failed. Some of them haven't even been actually, you know, sort of put out live. They've been killed beforehand, or they've gone out live, but they've created so much mm. so many problems. And whether it's the London Ambulance Service, or you know, having lived in the UK, just sort of being more familiar with some of those experiences, or the tax office, um, and no, not wasn't the tax office. One, yeah, some uh, some really big projects that have just been disasters. I, um, I the National Health them, IT yeah. System. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're just. We're not doing it right, and I think part of the reason why we're not doing right is sort of, of course, you know, other more complex reasons about around business relationships and changing needs and contracts fixed at certain times, but the system's not being built for years on when technology's moved on. But I think a bigger part is just not understanding that the software we're building is part of this complex socio-technical environment and that technology changes context, people, processes, creates new opportunities that, that are often unforeseeable until you get to try stuff out and work it out in practice. Mm -hmm. I invented a term here. Mm -hmm. I, now I call the, uh, technologies like this socio-technical amalgams. You know, amalgam, is that an English word even? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a mixture of two things that don't, that don't oh, actually... Anagram. Uh, no. No. Amalgam. Oh yeah, okay, yep. It, yep. It's, it's a mixture of like two metals yep. who don't actually form something new, but I'm yep. um, just... And it, to me, it's it's like that. You have the social social component, and yeah. the human component, component, yeah. and the technology component, and they don't mix very well yeah. usually. Yeah. So what comes out is this amalgam, where yeah. things stick out, and it's not a round thing, yeah. but um, rather in, in Germany we say sperrig. It, it, it doesn't fit well mm -hmm, anywhere, mm -hmm, and people don't feel mm -hmm, comfortable mm -hmm. at all. But um, it gets and used. No and no part of it works. The technology doesn't work. The yes, processes the don't work. Yes. Yeah. You've seen that thing about from Jimmy Kimmel where they go on the street and ask people for their password. Behind, I did. I saw that. Yes. Unbelievable. Just, that's, see, that's part of it. So we have this technology side and the, the person side, and both things don't work well. I mean, technology gets hacked, and evidently, it's very easy to hack people. That, that was so funny that people just sort of. <laughs> Continuing to answer questions that totally reveal their passwords. Yes. Without even, and many of them didn't even have the insight into the fact that they did it. It was only the last couple of people at the end of that little snippet on YouTube that. Oh, went, oh my God! Now you did. So, so we're also laughing about so, the stupid people. That's that's very good. <laughs> but uh, it makes you wonder whether you'd do the same. Yeah, you know, because you, you. you all of the, all of what was interesting about all those passwords that people were talking about, well, they, could, they were connected to things that mattered to them, to people or dogs or pets or birth dates or whatever that mattered to them. They weren't, and that was what it was primarily connected to. So as soon as the conversation switched from being about technology and passwords, 
It was just about, oh, when's your birthday? Yes. Oh, oh, what's the name of your so dog? That's where did you grow Where did you? And it becomes that personal story, yeah. I think this also shows a little bit the disconnect that most people still have between technology and their life, but technology is something external. So if you switch from talking about the technology to the life, then technology is just so far away that um, um, this other context takes over and lets them say yeah. things they, they shouldn't or wouldn't normally. Or another way of putting it is that technology isn't a separate thing from their life. That it's you know, it's oh, their life. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's another way of phrasing it. Yeah, that, maybe. That it's their life that's important, mm. and and part of being able to live a good life or do stuff, you know, is you know, the chairs that we're sitting on, the building that we're in, the you know, the tape recorder that we're using here, and they but they're not drawing our attention. Mm. The attention is well, on living and then, life, yeah. Yeah. and and so we, that's how we want good technology to be, just to be a, a, a part of it. You know, security flaws obviously uh, make that risky. Long silence. <laughs> um, so there's the, the, the difficult one thing to to um, uh, find the thread here is um, looking at the discussion around the um, uh, calm computing mm. that Mark Weiser proposed, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which um, has been criticized quite heavily, mm -hmm. but n n not only by, uh, now I find her name. Von Rogers? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, um, as being something that we don't want. We don't <coughs> actually want technology to disappear into the life mm -hmm. and just be everywhere mm -hmm. where technology thinks mm -hmm. it should intervene, but we want to have um, exciting lives mm -hmm. and do interesting yep. new stuff. It's a continuum, though. There is, that's a continuum of... Yeah, I think that's yeah. a continuum. I don't think it's an either-or. I think there are some places where we want technology to disappear. We don't... I, I don't want to know how my, the computer in my microwave works. I just want to be able to cook something for a minute. But there are other times when you want to have the, you want to be able to sort of open up the box and inspect it and understand it's working and maybe change parameters or something to fit. And there are other times where you do want technology to be at the fore where it becomes a key part of the engagement and the experience. And I. I think part of our ongoing work is understanding what that spectrum is mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what fits best into what sections of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Now, think about the, the you did a lot of work. <coughs> you did a lot of work with old people, mm -hmm. designing technology mm -hmm. that allows them to live an independent and um, in German you would say selbstbestimmt yeah. Yeah. Uh, life. Yeah. Um, uh, and one the things I always remember is the pictures you showed where people put it on um, knitted little yes. square. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. So one of, one of the challenges there has been uh, well, the driving challenges, you know, the, the, the rhetoric around the ageing population and the increased burden of chronic disease because we're all going to live longer and, and have chronic diseases and. We're not going to be able to keep people in hospitals in, in traditional healthcare models, so we need to think of new models. And a big part of that is the shift to the home and the community, where instead of people being an institution, you can monitor them and care for them at home. So one of the one of the problems has been a lot of this agenda has been driven from that uh, shifting healthcare into the home perspective and from the clinical perspective. 
And so it's been about largely monitoring, whether it's monitoring you know, physiological parameters like your blood pressure or whether it's monitoring whether you've gotten out of bed today or whether you're sitting on the seat or whether you've opened up the fridge door and we can infer that you've had breakfast. And what it's forgotten about is the people who are living in the home. A, people, you know, because often there's an assumption, an implicit assumption, especially in the early versions of these systems, that you know, if you had more than one person in the home, they would break, because you wouldn't be able to detect whose patterns of movement you were picking up. But the other thing is just recognising that there are people in that healthcare, in the same way that technology can just, you know, healthcare is just being a part of what makes life good. It's, and there are all sorts of other ways in which people need to um, still feel like their homes are home, like not a clinic or a hospital. And some of the critiques of many of the early devices, especially was that they looked very hospitally grey boxes and didn't fit into the aesthetics of the home. And you think of how much time and effort we put into buying the right sofa or the right um, you know, cupboard or whatever. And then you have these grey boxes come in that both look ugly and say to people who come to visit you, oh, you're a sick person. So there's lots mm. of lovely stories mm. in the literature about people who've hidden their medication in piano seat box, in piano seats so that you know, people don't see them when they're not out on the bench. Or the story that, and a lot of these are from Denmark, some of the studies that they've done in Denmark, and people who've been given a tablet PC to measure their blood pressure on that every morning because they're chronic cardiac um, patients. But, uh, and this particular photo you're referring to is from a man who would, who sat his tablet PC under, on a, on a bench, but with a doily, a crocheted sort of little mat doily on top and a vase of flowers on top of it. And he would pick that up, the flowers off every morning and open up the tablet and take his measurements, but there it would go back. And this lovely thing of making a place for technology in the home and integrating it, not, not just into the physical space, but into the aesthetics, into the qualities of what makes mm -hmm. a home a home. And then there are the other aspects about not just being about this passive one-way monitoring, but why aren't we using the same infrastructure to connect people socially, um, to enable people to pursue hobbies, even if they're not that physically mobile, to enable people to contribute and give? And there's loads of literature about the very positive health outcomes when people are more socially engaged and when they're in a, in, in a reciprocal sort of and, and giving situation. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that's connected to meaning in life and quality of life. Mm. I think that um, social here often means something different from what young people have come to accept as social, where it's all about connecting to their friends via digital media. Mm -hmm. Social is more like meeting people face to face yeah. as, yeah. as long as it's possible yeah. and being in groups yeah. and sharing experiences yeah. and stuff like that. And again, you know, there's a lot of literature that talks about older people having, you know, as you get older, your social networks get smaller. Mm -hmm. But um, so you often have sort of fewer, fewer relationships, but they're often much deeper and more meaningful. Um, you know, and how do we connect to that mm -hmm. with, with technology? Mm -hmm. that how do we how do we influence designers of these technologies? to consider all aspects of living, not just the medical, clinical aspects. When, who pays for these technologies, if it's the hospital or the, the local health authority, they just want to make sure their clinical aspects are cared for. And yet they will reap longer term clinical outcomes and cost savings 
addressing these other needs, but they're softer and less tangible. So, so we had this project where we designed the physiotherapy thingy yeah, yeah. and the original premise was that it's at home so you're, you're, the, the fact that you're doing your physical exercises is yeah. monitored yeah. and the system also gives you feedback about are you doing it right or are you doing it wrong mm -hmm. which is yeah. actually the important part because yeah. doing physical exercises wrong they're yeah. just useless but um, the question was how can we make something like a game that um, serves as motivation to go on and do mm -hmm. it every day. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the most promising um, approach that we found qu quite uh, quick was, um, or that we found actually after some time, was um, to offer them something they wouldn't get otherwise. Mm -hmm. So there's technology and mm -hmm. there's this disconnect between many older people and technology, but they know there's this fascinating world, mm -hmm. I don't know, for example, Google Google World or yeah. Google Earth or something. Oh, so, so, yep. so what we did is when you when you when you did the exercises right, yeah. you inflated a balloon yeah. and it goes up from your house and allows you an ever higher look yeah. from above yes. on where you live. Yes. And um, that's something that could motivate you just to yeah. go on and go on yeah. and go higher and higher yeah. because you want you want to see that. So yeah. there's, it, it, I mean, maybe it's naive to think that people actually want to see that. But then again, I always find it very fascinating. Yeah. Or, or seeing pictures fr from Flickr mm -hmm. according to some criteria which yep. you can specify yep. of, of stuff you, you like, I don't know, um, uh, trains or, yep. or roses or whatever, yep. you know, yep. tapping into that enormous yep. potential of, let's say, user-created content that yes. you have no idea yes. that exists. That, and that exactly resonates with work that we did in Sussex before I came here with uh, people and doing rehabilitation for stroke after a stroke at home and doing exercises. And one of the scenarios that we had was exactly Google Earth as well and talking to people. Um, some of them really wanted to see the places where they used to live. Mm. Oh, and yeah, don't anymore. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it's that same thing of Google Earth enabling yeah. them yeah. to visit places that they wouldn't be, weren't able to visit physically now yeah. or to yeah. reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. And to reconnect to hobbies. You know, and that's... But, and that's about connecting to people's interests and lives. Where, especially for older people, playing some strange games with penguins who yeah. fall over yeah. just doesn't make no. sense. They do that with... I remember doing some work with old people and we badly, we worded some survey questions very badly. Uh, so we got back answers relative to what we asked, you know, but do, do older people, we asked them about do they play games? And of course we got a really high percentage rate of people saying no, they don't play games. And when we brought a subset of them into the into the lab because we wanted them just to have a go at playing some of these sort of digital games at the time just to get and see what they thought of them, uh, the number of them who had said no, they don't play games in their survey, but when they're in the lab said, oh yeah, yeah, I've played, I've played the Wii, I've played this, I've played that. And we said, but you said, no, you didn't play games in the survey. And they said, well, well no, we were just playing with our grandkid. And the grandkid was playing the game, so we had to play the game to play the grandkid. So they weren't, they had, many of them had played games, but they didn't do it from their own motivation. The motivation was to spend time with the grandkid, and this is what the kids were interested in, so they got, they participated. Also what I find from time to time is that people who say they don't play games actually play games, but they don't call it games. 
Like what? Like, like um, Solitaire, for example, uh, uh -huh. which many yep, people yep, don't yep. call a game, no. but it's like, like, it's not even playing, yeah. it's um, yeah. doing something with cards, I don't yeah. know. But, um, yeah. um, oops. Um, the, yes, they're playing, and uh, some even move to the computer and doing a lot, playing a yeah. lot of Solitaire on the computer, yeah. but, but they don't use computers. Don't play games. And they don't, and they they don't, don't use computers, computers no. either. No, no, no. 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 I know, but th it says something about the integration of activities that have some meaning for people that aren't framed in the terms that we're trying to frame them in yes, as technologists, yes, absolutely. as um, yeah, yeah. IT designers. Ah, the frame. There is another key concept, frame. I think. Um, I don't want to leave the, the, the game so quickly, but I lost the thread. I wanted to ask something. Normally. I think games has become overhyped in some way. Oh, absolutely. Just as a, what well, do you think? I think yeah. um, game, everyone is trying to gamify solutions or approaches, and everything's a game. And sometimes I don't know. I have mixed mixed feelings about it. Sometimes I think it sort of has a way of devaluing the important aspects of yeah. of, of an activity yeah, or. Or the application that we're trying to build. I think it, it has in its core. There's a very behavioristic approach here, yeah, yeah. saying that you can, with the characteristic, yeah. you can motivate people to yeah. do anything, yeah. and that's just wrong. Yeah. That's the yeah, maybe that's some of what bugs me about it. There's this sort of thing of everyone will get sucked in. If we call it a game, they'll all get sucked in, and they won't realise. You know, I remember some of the early work we were doing in educational software technology, where you know this sort of thing of. Um, oh, what was the what was the term? Was it incidental learning or something? But you know the thing where you were, you got you told children you were, they were playing a game, but <laughs> you were really <laughs> teaching them all these sort of deep concepts, but they didn't know, and then he found out afterwards. And it was sort of that thing of sucking people in, and yeah, they don't yeah, really yeah, know yeah. that they're doing. You know, and sometimes I think people are quite happy to do their exercises, you know, if they want to. And then if we can make them more engaging, you know, um, if we can make the time seem less boring because they're going to have to do it for 10 yeah. minutes or whatever, then that's great. But it's not doing the sort of gamified, you know. I think one, one um, uh, perspective that has, it, it's actually a little bit deflated now. It's this idea that gamification is this magic powder yeah. and you sprinkle it yeah. on something boring uh, and whatever, poof, yes. it becomes something yes. interesting. And yeah. that's just stupid. Yeah. There's, there's actually one German researcher um, I, I just forgot his first name, but the last name is Tetating, which is a very strange name, but well, who cares? Um, yeah. And he has criticized that a lot, and very fundamentally, mm. Mm. and he did some, uh, but he, he still believes in um, the idea to use the language and the concepts of gaming mm. to make things mm -hmm. more accessible and more, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, graspable, yeah. but not in this easy way. Just sprinkle yeah. over a couple yeah. of achievements yeah. and uh, as a high score and yeah. a, a high score table, and uh, voila, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we, we thought about, we thought a lot about using concepts or maybe even just the language from games in the Aurora project, the, mm -hmm. the, our teaching backend system. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing we found recently was that it's much easier today to formulate goals or objectives mm -hmm. into as achievements mm -hmm. than to formulate them as this is what you have to do. You have to 
uh, I don't know, um, uh, two challenges worth mm -hmm. 60 points mm -hmm. uh, and, and enter them into evaluation and mm -hmm. then you have to have 40 points so that you have a positive um, grade. Um, that's quite complicated and mm -hmm. we have a lot of, I mean, it's not really complicated, yeah. but if people don't listen yeah. close, then it's hard to to uh, remember that. And in the end, we had a couple of people who didn't enter, who, who had 60, 40 points, but didn't enter enough to have the 60 points entered so they can get a grade at all. Right. But you can formulate that into achievements. And once you formulate, so then you can say, okay, there are three badges, and you have to have these three badges mm -hmm. at the end, and mm -hmm. then you have a positive note, and you have mm -hmm. this fourth badge, then you have um, maybe uh, an A or mm -hmm. a one, mm -hmm. and um, that's much easier because you can write one single sentence. Yeah, they can always read it, defer it to later. I'm gonna yeah. understand it later. Yeah. Um, instead of that paragraph that explains what you have to do, that is somewhere hidden. Right? Yeah. So there's, I think that's one of the benefits that it offers you a language and a frame again, mm -hmm. um, that people understand mm -hmm. very good, mm -hmm. especially the kids growing up yeah. where everybody plays digital games now. Yeah. So there's this language and the framing. When when you when you frame it that way, it's it's more accessible. But it must be challenging to work out how to frame it in a way that works. Because I, I was in at Queensland University of Technology in December and Leonard Naki from um, Canada was there. He's, he's sort of one of the big games researchers in the HCI era. And in his talk, he was talking about how he'd really tried to apply gamification concepts to his teaching, his courses. And in the end, he concluded that it was really hard and it actually didn't work very well. And I can't, I wish I could remember now, given what you've just said, mm -hmm. the details of what he said and how he framed it. So, you know, obviously there's something really important about getting, getting that framing right and getting the language right. But just when you were talking as well, I hadn't made this connection before, but the language and the framing and when sort of a, a concept that's been around forever suddenly takes on a cachet or a currency or sort of an understandability. I'm reminded about, you know, activity theory that's mm -hmm. been around since the 1920s and one of their key concepts around learning is the zone of proximal development, which is, and which is that, you know, you, where you're at right now and then um, what is the scaffolding and support you need to help you sort of advance to that next step and the next step. There's always sort of that next learning step that you mm -hmm. can take and um, in some ways it seems like you know, a gamification approach in the way that you've been talking about it, it can be very effective in helping people and you know, being the scaffold of the sport people just to sort of do that next learning mm -hmm. step mm -hmm. you know, within that next zone of where they are able to develop to. Well, anyway, that was just a. I think that very well describes how, how many games work, or you know, there's this zigzag curve the going up. Yeah. So where, where the challenge is always yeah. getting harder and harder, yeah. and then it's yeah. getting a little bit easier again, and yeah. harder and harder and harder. Yeah. And yeah. You can get very high that, yeah. uh, high that way. Yeah. And I think that captures that activity theory and this zone of notion of zone of proximal development is exactly that sort of you know the series of challenges that mm. just keep pushing you, encouraging you to take you know to move on and become you know learn more, do more. But it's been framed in, in activity theory and you know complex language like zones of proximal development mm -hmm. and scaffolding. Um, you know because there's a lot about what scaffolding you need to help make that sort of transition across the zone. 
I think there's an enormous amount of knowledge generated and used within the games industry, how to construct systems that actually um, get you at this very point mm. and mm. don't yeah. let you go. Yeah. There's this uh, one more level, yeah. oh, I'll try that yeah. once and if, yeah. I, if I fail I'll go to bed and then people are up until 3 or 4 in the morning. Um, but most of them use it to monetize mm. and um, earn money or, or just uh, get people to play more yeah. and not to uh, learn something yeah. like, um, outside of games. I haven't thought about this either, but you just said fail there as well. And maybe that's something that games do... Well, I, you know, you'd have to say, because I would say I'm not a gamer, but I'm sure if you actually talk to me more, I do things that would be playing games. But it seems to me that games allow you to fail. You know, you can get killed and you can come back to life again, you know. Um, and something about failing is an important part, and the language, again, the framing, uh, it's, you know, it's not necessarily <coughs> failing, it's, it's having learnt something in the process of not quite achieving what you wanted, but being able to try again mm -hmm. and build on that learning. I think this is something that um, Jane McGonagall mm. um, puts very much emphasis on, the, that, that optimism that you bring, that even if you fail, mm. you will be able to mm. do it at a later stage. Mm. Um, that is uh, very much that you can observe in games very mm. much more than mm. in, in other areas. In real life. Yeah, in and real I think life. that's a really positive thing. And there's even the term learning by dying <laughs> in, in, in games. So there's a, there's a classic paper, I think, by this um, Danish guy who basically just asks, why does Mario have three lives? And the answer is that you can learn, learn by, by dying. dying. Yeah. So it's a lovely, a, a lovely um, attitude or stance to support about learning. And much of our education system doesn't allow that. Absolutely. Doesn't uh, allow that if, learning if, by. If, yeah. We, not we try to do that. So we, we have this system where people can enter their work. Mm. And if they fail, they can mm. enter it again. Mm. They can learn mm. from our feedback and they enter it again. Well, mm. There's the question what kind of feedback do we give? We can't say, mm. no, that's wrong. And they try again, where there's a lot of learning involved and mm -hmm. a lot of reflection. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's wrong, but they're not telling me. In, way, in which way it's wrong, so mm -hmm. I have to figure it out in which way is it wrong. Mm -hmm. and that's, I think that's a very good position to, to get that learning or that reflection kicked in mm -hmm. where we learn a lot. Mm -hmm. Or we could tell people what is wrong and they do it again. Um, that's a lot of work. It's, yeah, from a human... An incredible amount yeah. of work. And yeah. um, we found that it incentivizes some people to just hand in some crap in order to yeah. get the feedback. Yeah. And based on the feedback, they can hand in some better crap and yeah. it, uh, turn it into an iterative process yeah. where it's actually not about learning, but mm. about getting us to do the, the, work, the work for them. For them. How do you find that balance? Because I'm reminded of journal review process as well. You know, often people will submit papers to journals that really should have taken another couple of weeks to have been polished properly or reworked, hoping that the reviewers would tell them what needs to be done, which puts a big load on the review community. Um, 
exactly. We did that <laughs> the other week where we entered a, a paper for a conference. We, we, we were going to write it a really good paper, mm -hmm. but then there wasn't enough mm -hmm. time. So we mm -hmm. thought, okay, we just send it there, we get the feedback, and we can yeah. enter it somewhere else. But I'm but getting worried about that because there, there's, the yes. there's so. Internationally, there's so much pressure on people's CVs to have quantity of publications, not quality. I don't, we somehow have lost sort of a sense of what real quality is. Quantity of publications, we have this in exponential growth of number of conferences and journals that all take enormous amounts of effort, volunteer effort, to run, organise a conference, to you know, manage reviewers, to do the reviews. And I just, I think we're going to break soon. I actually hope so. I know. Because the whole nice. system of science is it's broken. so broken. It's so broken. It's so broken. You know, the, the amount of time I've spent over the last few years writing proposals to do research, you know, hundred, you know, like these huge EU proposals or you know, 70, 80 page other proposals that don't get funded. And I just think of, not just my time, but all the time of all the people on the team. If we had have been able to put those hours into actually doing the research that we were talking about, where would we'd be in a much better place? Yes. And and the other aspect is that people actually hold back on their insights because the deadline for this big journal or conference is in three months and then it will take six months until it gets published. Yeah. So there's nine months yeah. between an insight or yeah. some sort of um, knowledge yeah. um, being acquired and being published and yeah. then it's published to a small yeah. select circle yeah. and maybe everybody else or maybe everybody has yeah. to pay enormous sums of money. Yeah. Maybe even and the person publishing it has exactly. to, has to I pay can't access some I mean, of my own papers. Yeah. Because this they're behind files. This is ridiculous. Which is, it is ridiculous that we, we've done the work in the writing the paper, the peer community's done the free work in reviewing, and you know, you just don't get the, you can't get access to it. Yeah. And people and, can't and, read it. And of course, there are readily available alternative models where people just, I don't know, blog about their work, yeah. and it's published, and yeah. you can read other people's yeah. ongoing research, you can exchange, you can deliver, you can give input, and and I'm seeing some uh, some yeah. organisations, some funding organisations, making it a criteria that your papers have to be freely available. And if you have to pay for your paper to be open access, they will pay that fee. But I resent that as well, given yes, that we've done all the work. Why should yeah. they be paying out more money to the to the journal company to? You know that Elsevier mm. has a higher. Um, ratio of um, what's it called? The the money you you get and the money you earn. PE ratio. Um, Price earning ratio. No, you have you have the, the in 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 German it's Gewinn. So mm -hmm. you have the money you get, and mm. then the money you have to pay. So there's mm. the rest, the money you right. earn. Yeah. And that ratio yeah. is higher than that of Apple, who has has a notoriously high um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. win ratio yeah. and that's ridiculous. But how this do we break the cycle? All the other print yeah. uh, publishers yeah. are going broke yeah. and getting are going squeezed, getting, getting squeezed, squeezed their profit margin and, squeezed. Um, pu scientific publishing just yeah. thrives yeah. and there's something wrong here. Something <laughs> is really fundamentally wrong. wrong. And it's, it's a hard, I, 
I've been really giving this a lot of thought lately because it concerns me about you know, PhD students that we're bringing through and what sort of future am I setting them up for? And what sort of culture am I helping to perpetuate that they're in? And I see my colleagues worldwide, it's not just, it's, it's, it's worldwide in developed countries, academics being increasingly just stressed, really stressed mm. and having just too much to do. And I don't know, until we, and I see young people finding it really hard to get jobs, the, the job, the, to get faculty positions or tenure track positions is just so much more difficult now than it ever was. And to be even considered, you know, you have to have a CV that after a couple of years that most academics previously wouldn't have had until they were 10 years in the job. And so we've got this culture on the one hand of really, you know, pushing young people and then all of us to uh, publish more, publish more, publish more, publish more, get more money, get more grants, have more students, teach more, get better teaching evaluations and this whole corporatisation of academia. And, it, and while that's happening, we're still going to be submitting to these journals or conferences because yeah. we need that extra yeah. entry on our CV. Right. So until we change that culture, the, the, the journals, the, these journal companies that are just laugh, going to be laughing and they're just responding to a pressure that we're creating elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how to change that uh, pressure. I, I, I talked to Constanze Steinkühler uh, when she was in Vienna for Frog, for the uh, Future and Reality uh -huh, Gaming uh -huh, Conference uh -huh. last fall. Who, and she's one of the researchers in, um, so she, she's one of the game researchers doing very interesting work, mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. doing a lot of quantitative work um, and obs also observing communities, mm -hmm. um, uh, doing real science out of interest for their games, mm -hmm. you know, setting up processes to understand the internal mechanics and how to best work the game so they can win. Mm -hmm. And in that process, doing all the hypothesis setting, making an experiment. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. It's mm -hmm. 15 years old kid, 15 year old kids who do that. That's it's really great. So, um, and I talked to her, and we talked exactly about that. And she asked, the, for me, the, the fundamental question, how did we let that happen? Because actually, in a way, it's us, you know? And it, it, this, it, it's, it's like um, how we're letting the planet run into the ground, mm -hmm. being run into the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when I was 15 or 20, I thought, I asked my parents, how did it get that far? I mean, it, it, this was the beginning of the mm. green movement yeah. and Umbel troops yeah. and stuff like that. And I thought, uh, or I asked them, how did you let the Second World War happen? How, yeah. how could that happen? Yeah. And we, we're always getting to these same situations. We're yeah. getting into situations which we don't like at all, oh. where some, let's call them pirates, took over and dictated rules, maybe not even as individuals, mm. but as ideas. The ideas took over and dictated rules for mm. everybody, mm. which we don't like at all. But um, we still let it happen, and I have no idea how to get out of that. Yeah, I don't know. Because you and I can afford to make, you, know, it's, you and I can afford to say, we will not apply for any more funding for, for yes. a year or two to yeah. focus on writing papers. Or you and I can say, we're only going to submit a paper if it's really good and we're happy with it to, and it's based on substantial work. You know, um, but then our students, might, you know, they, they don't have that luxury. And they might 
pay a big price for taking a, a similar principled stand. And, uh, the, the, the corporatisation of academia is, is a way, I think. That's one of the things that's happened that we've, somehow we've let happen, but then we haven't been in a position, have we, to influence? I mean, you hear stories of people taking over the running of faculties or universities or departments who have no academic background, who yeah. very much come yeah. from business sectors. We have our, our university that's wanting us to create a, a, um, a list of high-quality journals and then only value you know, give people brownie points if they submit to those journals. It's crazy. Silly, yeah. We're, bu we're yeah. buying into a lot of the things that other universities have done that are already proven not to work, but we're, yeah. we're going yeah. to repeat it because somehow it seems it's the, it's the academic meme going around that we have to measure and account in these ways. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. There must be <clears throat> other ways of measuring and accounting. I've been here for quite some time now, and I have a chance. I've, I've, I've had a chance to publish in a really broad number of, of, uh, of uh, channels. So I would say that there are probably a couple of other researchers at TU who have published um, so far distributed as I have. I can say I have a publication in almost every field of science now mm. that doesn't mm. count nothing, you know? Yep. It's because yeah. it's not in a list of journals, of course. Yeah. We put together this list of journals, but yeah. I have publications in very high-ranked yeah. um, social science yep. Um, yep. Uh, journals together with people from university yep. because that's how I work. Yep. And it doesn't count We have medical informatics yes. um, papers that don't fit in, yeah. don't yeah. sit under a computer science model. I think that's another problem. That's a, a different version of the problem, which is recognising that because of what IT can do today, uh, the, the field of informatics is way, way bigger than just what you said before. What was it called? The language of internal and external. Yeah. It's way more than internal. The internal doesn't make sense unless the external makes sense. And that for the external to make sense, we have to engage with multiple disciplines. Mm. And especially mm. in our area, we sit, at, we sit at that external and we're always interfacing with other disciplines mm. and that's mm. why we publish in other disciplinary areas. And I, it's very hard within a mainstream informatics faculty to have that recognised. Yeah. It's actually something that Hannes Wertner said, so that's two, two Gespräche ago. Or, um, uh, he said it, informatics is a, is, has a Janus face, you know? It's two-faced. It yep. has a, yes. a, a yeah. face that's looking inside yeah. and one face yep. that looks outside. Yep. And they are vastly different yep. in what they need and yes, what they do exactly. and how they look at stuff. And unfortunately, the face that looks outside is often looked down upon yes. and regarded yeah, as absolutely. not important. Yeah. And yet, if, you know, again, what it's something that Liam said last week. If we don't take that seriously. What on earth are we doing all the internal facing stuff for? What's the point other than just to pat ourselves on the back and say, great, we've, we've created an algorithm that runs two seconds faster. Yeah, it's, or whatever it is, yeah. But um, we really need to respect all of the contributions that people make. And I think we need to somehow sell more the contributions that the external facing can make to the internal in, in, cre in identifying new, really important internal problems to be solved mm -hmm. in order to address mm -hmm. some, you know, to be relevant to the external. Um, but there's, that's really interesting. <laughs> the, 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 
the notion of what is innovation mm. is yeah. very much at the heart of the question whether we look inside or outside. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look inside, there is substantial potential for doing new stuff, doing, uh, going into uncharted territory mm. and everything, yeah. especially in informatics yeah. as it's still so young and there's so much Always areas where nobody has solving. ever been. Yeah. But in a way that's a lure because all that counts in the world in the end yeah. is not the, and I wouldn't even call it innovation if you look inside, yeah. that's, that's maybe scientific um, discoveries and it's maybe an invention even, but it's not innovation because innovation can only happen on the outside phase. Yeah. It can only happen yeah. where it becomes, it comes in contact with the world yeah. and creates something that's meaningful and new yeah. and not something that is an interesting concept or a technology that's just baffling but nobody yeah. really knows how it contributes yeah. to the world and uh, to the lives of yeah. people. And this has been a discussion in the HCI community uh, more recently as well. Um, where, because again, this whole culture of academia and the pressure to publish, 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 we're getting many more papers that focus on short uh, two-month pieces of work or a, you know, a long deployment might be a month. And there's no room or scope either in people's academic timetables, career timetables, or in sort of publishing sort of, well, for projects that really report on some things that have been running and out in the world for a long time and exploring that ongoing appropriation, adoption and impact and innovation in use. And we, that would be great to learn how to, as a community, to value those contributions, recognising the importance of that as innovation as part of you know, the whole reason for our existence. There are so many things to say. Uh, one thing is um, what I thought for and talked to a couple of people for some time now is that one thing we need as a community is a channel where we can just discuss design and not from a um, look how beautiful it is perspective but from a long-term use perspective yeah. so that the typical one or six weeks one month or six weeks or three months deployment and then we test again yeah. um, thing just doesn't count it's about two years and three yeah. years and yeah. about stuff that is there yeah. and where we yeah. can do in-depth discussion yeah. on why things are the way they're and yeah. the way they are and what we can yeah. learn from that and I've been um, interested in the debate happening in the medical informatics community in particular because um, a lot of the evaluations that happen in that field are very much driven or skewed by the randomised control trial model, yeah. which is brilliant for something where you say, you know, I'll give you know, people pink pills and blue pills or whatever and they, they you know, the, everything else just continues as normal. Um, or a piece, a little piece of you know, a, a, a device, a simple device. But the IT that we're developing for, say, telecare or the home care that we talked about before, it doesn't have any inherent value on its own. It only has value when it's put into use in particular mm -hmm. contexts. Mm -hmm. And the scope of impact is huge because it depends upon the upon the context and and multiple other factors. And so trying to have an evaluation model as well that might measure some sort of outcomes as relevant because I know that people need outcome numbers but also picking up on what you know, there is being talked about now a lot in terms of realist evaluation 
drawn from the policy sector is understanding not that it's not a simplistic yes it works and the answer's 10 or we got a 10% improvement or whatever but rather when it has worked why has it worked mm -hmm. what are the factors that have been in place what are the processes that have evolved to, to maximize the, the value from this you know, so it's 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 understanding the patterns of use and what we can learn from it to do better you know next time or for people who are yet to take it up to learn the lessons and be able to use it more but that asks the next hard question um, that about generalization of insight and, mm. and knowledge yeah. which is the the more you get into this concrete yeah. this is the one case yeah. and it now it's now in place for yeah. three years yeah. this is what we have learned yeah. is this what we have learned something we can generalize and offer as an insight yeah. where people can build upon or is it something that applies to this one case yeah. to this one maybe even situation you know yeah. that i know that's a really hard question as well and i think it's not about generalization because we're not it's it's too complex it, we could pretend to generalise, but it, we'd be just telling a lie. But what I think we can do is we can package up learnings and insights as guidelines or principles or key factors and offer them as starting points for the next one. So there's sort of not mm. generalisability, but transferability. Mm. Mm. And then someone can pick, some, pick this up and say, in what ways was that context similar to my context and how do I make sense of that? So there's still a big role for creative sense-making and designing. So design isn't just about the product or the device or the software or the tangible object. It's design of the whole thing. It's design of the processes that put this to use. It's the design of the physical spaces you know, um, in which they're embedded. It's the design of the organisational roles and policy. You know, it's design in, in its much broader sense if we're to get value from technology. So the one of the things that um, How to say that? Um, one of the problems, I think, when you look at it this way, is that to 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 see that we're in in that way, in a way, um, competing with a hugely successful industry of. who actually creates products and sells them and um, sees the the market success yeah. as the ultimate evaluation yeah. and um, as the thing where everybody else then comes and does it alike, does it alike, yeah. um, and just um, uh, well, uh, how how you look at it, copies ideas mm. or steals ideas mm -hmm. or takes ideas further and builds upon them. So, mm -hmm. um, but some of those market areas, have, oh, oh no, let's just pick a washing machine or something. Mm -hmm. um, some of those productized uh, things that could be talked about there. I'm sure at the very beginning, when washing machines first appeared, it was a disruptive technology. If you think about some of the old communities that you go visit with the communal wash yeah, basin yeah, in the centre yeah, of town, yeah. and that wouldn't have just been the function of washing, it would have served a social function where you met your neighbours and you talked and you just solved community problems or, you know, whole lots of things would have happened around that those big shared washing 
um, what do you call them? I can't remember. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that at some point where washing clothes got moved as into the home as a private activity, it was disruptive in a way. There were changes that were needed, and and then there was the need for new roles. You know, like now you need washing machine service technicians for when they break down, or and spare part supplies. But we don't think about that anymore because it's such a given part of what we do and how we do it. We have the things in place, mm, the processes, mm. the roles, the procedures, all of you know, we've we've created other ways of connecting in communities or not, you know, seeing that we don't all meet around the laundry, the communal laundry. And we're probably at a similar sort of disruptive stage now with many of our different technologies that we're working out that in 20 years' time people will just take for granted. That, and they'll think it's just a simple technology that's a product. But over those intervening years, we've had to work out a lot about what to do. And I'm just, I'm, as a simple example, is a project that, um, at the Monarca project in Denmark, where they developed an app for uh, people with um, bipolar, bipolar disease who, who could monitor their mood, etc., etc. And the nurse at the centre would log on every morning and see a summary of all the patients they were looking after, sort of what their entries had been the day before, and would be able to look at trends and be able to sort of say, ah, maybe Peter's sort of starting to get into a bit of a manic phase, let's, I'll just contact him and see how he's going. And it seemed like a simple technology that was well motivated by you know, really well-argued medical reasons for detecting things early, prevent, you know, putting in place preventative strategies um, and support. But it took, there's this lovely paper that talks about the problems from the nurses' side, about trying to make sense of it. I mean, how do they interpret these numbers? What if you see someone starting to trend in a particular way on Friday afternoon when you're going off work? Do you, should you be logging in at the weekend when you're not at work? Well, you know, and there, was, there were whole lots of changes that were needed in their role about how they interacted with the patients and how they managed their work-life sort of times, um, how they made sense of the raw data, you know, whole lots of other things that went on around it. So the technology worked, yes, you could take a measure, you could you know, rate your mood and it could be seen in a graph. And from a purely in technology point of view, that worked. But it took, and it worked from the beginning. Mm. There were changes that they made in iterations, but they, you know, just sort of standard. But the, the bigger ongoing disruptiveness was around the care model in which this technology was bedded. And they were still working, after a year of it being installed, this paper was sort of talking about how they were still working it out. They were starting to work it out, they'd made some changes, you know, they were starting to work out how to work with it, but it took a long time. Mm. And if it gets rolled out again to another clinic, they will be able to learn from what they did and, and think about how they would apply it in their clinic. But it's that rolling out, I've lost my train of thought of what we were, what no, we no, were no, saying. No, 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 that's, um, we're coming from the industry and the product to uh, a successful... Yeah, so it's not a product, so in, in 10 years time, this could just become a standard product for care of bipolar. Mm. And we, the clinic processes are in place and you know, everything else, but we, at the moment, they're not, and they're being worked out. Mm. And it's important not just to package up the, this mm. app mm. as an app, as that's the solution, but it's the app and the processes in which it's, it needs to be embedded to make it work, mm -hmm. and the people and the skills and you know the, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But that that sounds like a very mm -hmm. what a niche, a very controlled niche. 
where they, this is happening? Other areas like, I don't know, taxis and Uber and stuff? Yeah, or, yeah. Or yeah. hotels and Airbnb yeah, yeah. where the disruption is coming, yeah. I don't know, like an yeah. avalanche more. Yeah. And actually yeah. disrupting um, years and years of um, uh, regulations. Yeah. Stable business arrangements in, in society about who, who should be allowed, yeah. how should it be, yeah. you know, standards, setting standards, and stuff like that. And now, I mean, Airbnb yeah. is just destroying smaller hotels and yeah. places to stay in an incredible rate yeah. and replacing them with um, places you can stay where there is no regulation at all, yeah. you know. Yeah. And disrupting neighborhoods. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There, yeah. There's lots yeah. of you know, interesting articles about people being upset with their neighborhoods losing permanent residents. Yeah. Because if you've got an apartment in an attractive area of town, you can make more by renting it out than yeah. by living uh, in it. There are people saying that the high prices for rent in San Francisco is not because of Silicon Valley, yeah. it's because Airbnb, of Airbnb, yeah. because yeah. whole neighborhoods are yeah. now houses yeah. with um, uh, Airbnb apartments. Yeah. Yes, this, and some of this is labelled under the share economy as well, which is a bit yeah. because it's purely it's purely economic. And what we've got a project called Give and Take, which is looking at how to support um, mutual sort of caring peer peer support, giving and taking skills services, but in non monetized ways. And in, mm -hmm. in the literature review we've been doing, it's been interesting that some of these models that started off as not necessarily non-monetized, but not necessarily driven much more by an, an ethical agenda or an, an agenda around sharing, have, are now very much being commercialized and taken yeah. over by strong and, profit and, and motives. Secure, yeah, and securing, securing it against those profit motives so yeah. that big money but, doesn't come in and ruin yeah. everything. But it's, it's, again, as you said, it's the... You know, so we've shifted from this... Uh, idealistic share economy to this new economy that's hard to label as a share economy yeah, because we're not yeah, sharing yeah. anymore, it's not collaborative consumption or anything, it's just yet another sort of cutthroat economic yeah. uh, make as much money as I can model. Yeah. Enabled that, by yeah. technology. Yeah. Yeah. That's only here, it only exists because it's enabled by technology. Yeah. 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 Like, like Airbnb, where that started off as I, I sleep on your I let yeah, you sleep on my, my couch, couch. I yeah. sleep on your couch. And I'd be but a local guide think, for you to the yeah. area and I'll introduce you to my friends. It's now 17 people yeah. who earn 50% of the money that goes through Airbnb. That, I so didn't know that. That's something completely else yeah. entirely. Yeah. It's a, cup, a few people yeah. gaining hugely. So by this, this goes back to your question: How do we? How are we letting this happen? Yeah, you know, because Once it again. was something yeah. that started off yeah. in, with, with great motives. You know, like being able to stay with the local and have. Um, have a very different connection to the city you're visiting because you're on someone's couch and they take you along to the, the party with their friends and you know, tell you their favourite restaurant. And now it's something that's sort of this, this juggernaut that's created a life of its own and you know, I don't know, why are we letting this happen? And then the governments are trying to respond in uh, uh, regulating, who was regulating? Governments are, trying, are, are sort of trying to respond belatedly in regulating who can rent out and oh, well, I'm in, trying I to think, think in, the, in the case of Uber, they uh, uh, 
doing that actually quite quickly. So mm. everywhere Uber goes, mm -hmm. regulations come yeah. into place yeah. to either make it legal or to yeah. outlaw it and stop it from yeah. happening. Because yeah. some, yeah, of course, Uber is just like taxes, but yeah. nobody pays for social security yeah. or um, for security it's, at it's, all or anything. And it's a lot so. of the, yeah, there's a lot of stories of exploitation yeah. in very bad yeah. ways. Yeah. So that's really... Mm. But it's interesting that these things are enabled by technology, you know, the, the apps making it really easy to do your Uber taxi or the, you know, web forms where anybody can say, hey, I've got a couch you can sleep on. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and then how they get taken over by mainstream profit. And in a way, it was such, an, such a natural process. I, I remember when I was young, there was Mitfahrzentrale, which was a place oh, where yeah, you call yeah. and get a seat in somebody's yes, car who yeah. goes to the same place as you go. Oh, and people it, think that's new. Well, it was just for long distance travel. It How was long? going to Berlin yeah, or Paris yeah, or something yeah. because it was just too much hassle yeah. uh, if I want to go to 7th District to, yeah. to get somebody who picks me up and takes me yeah. uh, along. Yeah. But now suddenly it's, um, it's possible technology I just send yeah. and say hey pick me up to 7th district yeah. and it will probably happen but um, the the subversion of it is that it um, creates an, a shadow industry yeah. where people are exploited massively yeah. um, and we don't know what to do yeah. about it it's really sad and, and we do need taxes paid we do have a lot of common goods in our cities that we rely on you know street lighting streets being paved and you know, we, we 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 have a lot of we need taxes to run civil society. I would even say that um, a lot of what we have in place as social security is necessary for our society to uh, function as uh, um, smoothly as uh, it does. I mean, yeah. Vienna is a city with a very low crime rate, yeah. and a lot of this has to do with a solid net of, yeah. well, not very solid, but a good net of yeah. social security yeah. compared, to, compared to other societies yeah. where this doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It, it was there in the 70s, but it's not there anymore. Yeah. It's falling apart in ways anyway. But well, that's what I wanted to just to get back. Um, I think um, in game in, in games industry, there's a very interesting format where they do. I think they call it a core dump. So after the project is finished, after it's put out on the market, they. Um, they get together and um, reflect on the experience of making it, yeah. creating it, and yeah. what they have learned. Yeah. So they can, when they do a next project, they can incorporate that and try to change so the they, processes and the really, and everything. Do they really do that? It'd be great if they did. Do they do it? Yes, really? they actually do it. Okay. And some, some companies in actually do it publicly, okay. uh, uh, publicly, publicly. Yeah. So they they have this day where all the the central project yeah. persons yeah. tell that's in excellent. public about their experiences. That's excellent. Because that's excellent. Because when I when I worked in industry, we had uh, the the commitment to do that in yeah. the company, yeah. but it never happened. And we had. Um, we also had systems, you know, it was the days of sort of knowledge management systems being the solution to everything. And so we had a system where we were supposed to, after a project, um, capture lessons and document them and upload them to the system, as well as uploading any other sort of information that we got, you know, whether it was contacts or whatever from from the course of the project. And then when other people had a, an issue, they were supposed to go into this system and then search. And it never worked. A, we never were given the time between projects because that would be sort of mm -hmm. technically unfunded. We were never given the time between projects to properly do that. 
and B, even if there was stuff in the system, no one went searching. You would always still just look for the human index into the knowledge management system. So you'd send out an email and say, hey, has anyone done this sort of project for this sort of client? Or anyone, how does anyone solve this problem? Just the coffee machine even, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, you might eventually get pointed to something in the system, but no one ever found anything in the system. You know, for all the reasons why knowledge management systems don't work well, you know, people had different terminologies, didn't know where to look, didn't know how to interpret stuff. People had stuff hidden in a document but wouldn't have labelled it or put it as part of the meta tags or anything, to metadata for it to be found. Oh, it was just very interesting. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm impressed that this is a company yeah. that... Yeah, that there are companies that do do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not called Cortan, but I, I can't for the life of me yeah. remember what it's called. And is this it's because like I wonder that. games is such a competitive, competitive industry and there's so, it costs so much to build a good game to mar get it to market and so many don't do well and that, that there's a greater motivation. Whereas if it's in a you know, software, a business and technology company like I worked in, the, com the client had already paid us the money um, we would bid for the next project and then get the contract and deliver. So our core learnings, it was less critical that our core learnings followed through. Mm, I um, don't know. It would be interesting to... But maybe it's just something that, um, you know, snuck in and now stays because yeah. it's very helpful. It's yeah. called post-mortem, not called post-mortem. Post yeah. Lovely, yeah. lovely. Yeah. We should be doing that all the time, more often about everything. Yeah, because we have so much time <laughs> left to do but that. But we would, we would save know, ourselves so yeah. much yeah. just to, to take the time out to stop and reflect. Yeah. I, I was thinking at learning by doing and reflecting. And that whole thing, what worked well, what didn't work well, what could we do differently next time, what have we learned? You know, it's just, for every, every aspect is... Well, it's a beautiful final thing. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if we had a chance to think about everything we did properly and reflect on it mm. and learn from it? Mm. <laughs> so, um, thank you very much mm. for the time. Um, I appreciate it very much because um, I know you have such a tight schedule. So Thank you, it's been interesting, great. fun. Um, yeah, it was fun, yeah. actually. The thing why I'm really doing this, and mm. I'm, I'm not telling anybody, is yeah. um, that I re really want to find these one hour, one and a half hours to sit together with interesting people and talk about interesting things. I actually don't care if anybody listens. <laughs> See, this the, is, the this is a time just an excuse. And this is a time out to stop and reflect yes. and talk. Yes. So, once again, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank, thanks to, to any listener who has made it that far. And um, remember, wherever you go, you will be there then. Thank you. Good, thank you. Thank you.